always come back to me. I forget how it started. You'll always come back to me. Welcome to Dead to Me, out of the archives. My name is Renee Stock, and I'm a librarian. The idea for this podcast is every episode, I'm going to find an interview with somebody interesting and do a little research about their life or the time that the interview took place to try to put it in some context and then read the interview to you. The idea for this podcast came up when I was reading an interview with Sam Shepard, who was featured in this first episode, and he talked about the difference for him between writing for the stage or writing a play and writing a novel. And the way he put that, I thought it was so beautiful. And it got me thinking about how many interviews and how much great information just gets lost or missed or overlooked. And so I thought it might be a good idea to go back and kind of resurface some of these great interviews. New York Times alone generates an average of 150 news stories Monday through Saturday and 250 articles on Sunday. That's 1,500 stories a week, and that's only in one single newspaper. And according to the database Statista, I told you I'm a librarian, there are approximately 1,500 daily newspapers in the United States alone, So that's a lot of content being created and a lot of content being missed. And there's a lot of great stuff out there. It's funny because we used to be afraid that the digital world was going to be very impermanent and only things printed on paper were going to last forever. And now it seems like we're having the opposite problem where we cannot get rid of a digital file. Um, So that's just sort of an interesting aside that I've been thinking about as I've been putting this podcast together. Um, So, so many things that we miss and we overlook And even worse, sometimes we lose things and we lose people, no matter how hard we hold on to them, no matter how much we love them, they they sometimes slip away. And I thought it might be nice to remember these people and rekindle old, not necessarily relationships, because I certainly never knew any of these people, but old kinships. And maybe along the way, we might discover a hidden gem or a really funny line or a really great insight. Not everyone has access to great archives or understands how to search them. So that's why I think it makes a lot of sense that a librarian puts this podcast together because those are two skills that we definitely have. And I have access to great archives. So uh, I wanted to share some of this. I'm starting this podcast with an interview with Sam Shepard because I was reading a lot of Sam Shepard interviews when he recently passed away. And they were all great, but there's just the one that I'm sharing in particular I really, really loved, and I wanted you to hear it too. Um, Sam Shepard was born in no, on November 5th, 1943, just a few miles out of Chicago, which is funny because I assumed he was just born out of the West, but in fact, he was born in the Midwest. His father was a pilot in the Air Force and had a very nomadic life, so he has spent a lot of time out West. He grew up um, in California He's lived in New Mexico, he's lived in Minnesota, he's lived in Kansas, a very nomadic lifestyle. He had a very difficult relationship with his father, which I think informed a lot of his plays. There's definitely a darkness there that it's, it seemed like it was hard for him to escape. A lot of his work also seems to revolve around the myth of the disappearing American West. In, in interviews, he talks a lot about the California that he knew and loved and how it's gone. And as I get a little older, I'm starting to understand that perspective. Things have changed so much in the city of Chicago since I was growing up here. It's almost like 
it's a totally different place and the place that I knew is dead. But I think it's just, I, just, I think it's not disappeared. It's just evolved, but it's sometimes hard to think about it in that way. Because things always seem better in your memory and what you love seems to keep disappearing. I definitely knew him as an actor first, probably first became aware of him um, in The Right Stuff. He played Chuck Yeager, but he was mostly a playwright. He thought of himself as a writer. He wrote more than 55 plays. He won a Pulitzer for one of them, Barry Child, in 1979, but he also wrote screenplays, poems, and books. He directed, and of course he acted. He traveled at one point with Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. He got married, and he had children. Uh, He had a big life, but writing was definitely the center for him. If you've ever read any of his plays or seen one of them produced, you'll know that his writing is very weird. It's very dark. It's fascinating because it's very hard to crack. You have to work at what it's about. It's not obvious, but I think that's why I like him so much. I'm always very interested in difficult people, people who take a very long time to understand, that take a long time to um, get to the heart of what what they were about. But luckily, writers tend to leave a treasure ho- trove behind them when they leave for us to come through to understand them better. Two places that house large portions, portions of his personal archives are both appropriately enough in Texas. The first is at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin, and the second is at the Whitliff Collections at the Texas State University in San Marcos. A lot of what is so interesting about him are his thoughts on playwriting, and particularly one thing that stood out to me were his thoughts on ending. Endings and endings of plays. Uh, This is a quote, I hate endings, I just detest them. Beginnings are definitely the most exciting. Middles are perplexing, and endings are a disaster. I don't know if he knew that he was sick or not when he sat down for this interview with Laura Barton, Um, but the topic of death does come up more than once. In one of his notebooks in Austin is the following sentence, I know that I am dead, but I have not given up on the possibility of living. The interview that follows was published in The Guardian on September 7, 2014, and Sam Shepard died three years later on July 27, 2017. The Guardian, Sam Shepard, America's on its way out as a culture, interviewed by Laura Barton. As his seminal 1980 play True West is revived in London, the influential playwright reflects on the diminishing global role of the U.S. and the deaths of his friends Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robin Williams. Sunday, September 7, 2014. Sunday evening in Santa Fe and Sam Shepard and I are sitting at a downtown bar drinking tequila and eating tacos. The light is low, the night warm, and the conversation darts and dives while the bartender rattles the cocktail shaker and behind us tables begin to fill. Already we have covered several pressing matters, including the merits of Chekhov, I'm not crazy about him as a playwright, why are you going to bring a dead bird on stage, the qualities of greyhound piss, like champagne apparently, and the ancient Egyptian goddess Isis, The way she turns into a bird? Unbelievable. You can't make that shit up. But now our conversation has turned to the subject of True West, the play Shepard wrote in 1980, now revived at the Tricycle Theatre in London. Directed by Philip Breen and starring Eugene O'Hare and Alex Ferns, 
The production first appeared at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre last year, earning much acclaim, not least from Shepard himself, who was instrumental in ensuring its London transfer. I think Philip's production is great, he says this evening, and the actors are terrific. You really rely on great actors. He recalls one of the play's most notable stagings in New York at the turn of the century. The two leads played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley, who alternated parts every so often to keep things lively. Shepard saw Seymour Hoffman a week before he died of a heroin overdose in February and said he had no inkling anything was awry. He was overweight, but he was overweight a lot, he says quietly, and he was pretty tired. He said he was going to go back and take a nap. See, I don't think he meant to kill himself. I think he had some bad heroin, though I didn't realize he was that much of a junkie. He pauses. I knew Robin Williams pretty well, and Robin knew he wanted out. He had Parkinson's. The two guys were very similar in that they were both overwhelmed by their own thing. I know a lot of people who've died, who've taken their own lives, he continues after a moment of quiet. But you know, Patty Smith, who's an old, old friend of mine, she wrote a review of the new Murakami book that appeared in the New York Times. And at the end of it, she said, I don't want to kill myself. I want to see what happens. And what a statement. I believe her. For more than five decades, Shepard has been one of the most prominent and respected figures of the American stage and screen. For some, he has been principally an actor, the star of Days of Heaven, The Right Stuff, Francis, where he first met Jessica Lange, who would be his wife for nearly 30 years, and more recently brothers opposite Jake Gyllenhaal, and the assassination of Jesse James with Brad Pitt. But for others, certainly himself, he is first and foremost a writer. He began writing for the stage in New York in the early 1960s, having dropped out of an agricultural degree, spurred on by reading the work of Samuel Beckett and by the desire for contemporary America to have a theatrical voice. Back then, there was a dearth of American theater, he explains. There was nothing going on. American art was starving. He wrote La Turista, Angel City, Cowboy Mouth, a collaboration with his one-time partner, Patti Smith, among many others, before True West, Fool for Love, various short stories, sketches, essays, and a screenplay for Wim Wenders, Paris, Texas. In 1979, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his three-act play Buried Child. Today, he divides his time between his farm in Kentucky and his home in New Mexico, where he holds a post at the Santa Fe Institute, one of several highly accomplished creative thinkers appointed to catalyze transdisciplinary collaboration synthesize ideas and methods from many disciplines, and enhance or even define new fields of inquiry, according to the Institute's literature. I go there every day, is how Shepard puts it, his tone hovering lightly. It's kind of interesting. It's a think tank situation, 95% of it scientists. Me and Cormac McCarthy are the only two writers. Everybody else is a nuclear physicist, which is cool, you know, but it leads to a lot of conversational dead ends. He laughs laughs wheezily. Many of his sentences end this way in a warm, chest-deep rasp. At the moment, he's writing his first novel. After six book collections, basically I thought, God, wouldn't it be so great to be able to sustain something? But he is hesitant to expand on plot or themes. Eh, He says stickily, I don't know how to explain it. I really don't. Hopefully it's a novel. But I have the hardest time sustaining prose. I feel like I'm a natural-born playwright. But the prose thing has always mystified me. How to keep it going. Another long chuckle. 
How do people do it for years and years? I've been working on this thing for 10 years. The Institute has helped. In Kentucky, he would be tempted away from work by his horses and his cattle, by the easy pleasure of riding a tractor around the farm. Here, he has a desk and the air of academic rigor radiated by an institution. It's a great discipline, he says, so I'm very content for that reason. I mean, I produce pages. Pages! He looks faintly amazed, whether they're any good or not. The trick to balancing the demands of writing, acting, theater, film, and novels is simply that I don't do them all at once. Not like Peter Ackroyd. He works on a history, a biography, and a novel all at the same time. He just goes away for a day and does that, he says, astonished. I read a long interview in the New York Times, and they asked him, What do you do when you're not writing? He says, drink. Shepard laughs and raises a toast. Slanja, he says, cheers. Born in Illinois, though probably conceived, he points out, in Texas, where his father, an Air Force pilot, was stationed, and where my mother tracked him down and jumped the fence. Shepard was raised in California and lived variously in New York, California, and London before New Mexico and Kentucky. Even now at 70, his life is often led by the roaming nature of film sets, most recently shooting in New Orleans. Not surprisingly, an itinerant quality has imbued much of his work, a feeling that, as he says this evening, I don't belong much anywhere. It has been writing, he says, that has been his mainstay, his home. And by way of illustration, he tells me about traveling with Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review in 1975. It was pretty insane, now that I look at it. It wasn't really, but I wasn't accustomed to transients. Every second was all about movement, and I was glad to get back to a kind of constancy. Writing was that constancy. He is inspired not so much by landscapes, but by its connections to the past, and talks of the pueblos that once covered New Mexico, the 2,000-year-old pottery you can kick up with your feet in the desert. His own connection to this area goes back a long way, too. I can remember going through this town when I was eight, he recalls, on my way to Chicago. I remember being very alone, very, very alone, being stranded on the train in the middle of Indian country. It's the kind of recollection that makes you consider the extent to which Shepard is, like Clint Eastwood, Aaron Copeland, or Frederick Remington, bound up in the mythology of the narrative of the American West, his life plated into his writing and his roles, and how much this was part of his appeal. He set true West in the suburban California made familiar to him by his mother's home in Pasadena. It focuses on a fierce sibling rivalry between Austin, an Ivy League-educated screenwriter, and his wayward brother Lee, who claims to spend much of his time in the Mojave Desert making dubious ends meet. As the pair house-sit for their mother, they come into increasing conflict over the sale of a screenplay, and their contrasting lifestyles, their tussle set against the sound of crickets and coyotes, and the death of houseplants, the stealing of toasters. In essence, the play explores the ideas of the insider and the outsider, identity, family, and America's idea of itself, examining the point at which the new west of civilized suburban America meets the wild and uncontained old west. And so it seems fitting to be sitting in a desert city with Shepard this evening to listen to him take stock of American culture 34 years after True West was written. Shepard's first example of an outsider was his father. He laughs with a frustration that has faded to fondness. He thought it was all ridiculous, the idea of being a solid citizen. And he went further and further off in the direction of being an outsider, mainly in simple terms of alcoholism. My mother was the opposite, very together, 
figuring how to get along. I wonder how Shepard has so long negotiated a career that has required careful calibration of his own outsider and insider inclinations, the placating of studio executives, producers, publishers, theaters, who see films, plays, and books principally in commercial terms. I don't get along, Shepard says gruffly. It's difficult. I know as an actor you have to negotiate, but I can't handle the whole idea that art and commerce are synonymous. It drives me nuts. And then you get the reputation of being difficult to work with. There are, he adds, producers who seem to really care. But he's skeptical of the big studio guys and Netflix and those people who don't think about what the actor's going through, what the writer's going through, what the artistic essence is. A theater audience has always felt different, he says, and it is still theater that lights him up. When he talks about it today, the physical space, the actors, the language, there is a reverence for it, a wonder. You know, writing for the theater is so different than writing for anything else, because what you write is eventually going to be spoken. That's why I think so many really powerful novelists can't write a play, because they don't understand that it's spoken, that it hits the air. They don't get that. He pauses, returns to thinking about his novel. But of course, I have the opposite problem, he concedes. I can hear language. I can hear it spoken out loud. But when it comes into the head, I have a much harder time. Prose demands a carefulness he finds troublesome. You need to be a lot more pedantic, he says. I think. I don't know. The language of dreams is so different to the language of academics. It's beyond me. But the difference of spoken language and the language of the head is vast, huge. It used to all be spoken, all out front and in the air. These days, he reads a lot of Irish writers. They are head and shoulders above, he says. It's the ability to take language and spin it, and a lot of South Americans, too, because they seem to have a handle on the ability to cross time and depth. He struggles to think of contemporary American writers he rates beyond Dennis Johnson. The thing about American writers is that as a group, they get stuck in the same idea that we're a continent and the world falls away after us. It's just nonsense. Did he ever get stuck in that idea? Well, I couldn't see beyond the, hotel, the motel room and the desert and the highway, he says slowly and turns his glass a little. I couldn't see that there was another world. To me, the whole world was encompassed in that. Encompassed in that. I thought that was the only world that mattered. And it's still there, he adds, but now it's redundant because everything's replaced by strip malls. The situation, he believes, is irredeemable. We're on our way out, he says of America. Anybody that doesn't realize that is looking like it's Christmas or something. We're on our way out as a culture. America doesn't make anything anymore. The Chinese make it. Detroit's a great example. All those cities that used to be something. If you go out to a truck stop in Salislaw, Oklahoma, you'll probably see the face of America. How desperate we are. Really desperate. Just raw. But why, I ask, is the world still so infatuated with American culture? Why even do we remain gripped by a place such as True West? Oh, because they all believe the American fable, he says, that you can make it here, but you don't make it. You've made it pretty well, I say. Yeah, but I've also... I've... Yeah. He hesitates, laughs a long, rich wheeze. But you know, oddly, I wasn't even fucking trying.